Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, our guests are E.J. Dion and Miles Rappaport, who are the authors of 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. And, uh, you know, sometimes these book titles are kind of obtuse or you're not quite sure what they're about, but I think EJ and Miles lay it out pretty clearly here what they're going to do in this book and what they do in the interview. And they really, the sort of centerpiece for their case is Australia, which has had a system of universal or sometimes called compulsory voting for a while now. And, uh, and they sort of walk us through how they see something like that playing out here in the U.S., yeah, and they make a really compelling or a really appealing case, don't they, Michael? Yeah, yeah, it was you know it was really fun to read this. I thought be- because I had to hear this interview uh, for years and years. I've been using this Australia compulsory voting as an example in my class for students to talk about. Should we have that here? And so listening to them, I really appreciated how they drew out quite how different things are in uh, in Australia. And uh, it left me wondering, Chris, why we can't have good things here. Like, why we can't have nice things, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it really sounds like, you know, w- wait a minute. This, is, this all sounds pretty good, right? I mean, it's a holiday. It's got a party atmosphere. What do they all have? D- democracy sausages at the end? <laughs> you can actually buy, and I, I learned this today from listening to the interview that you can get yourself a democracy sausage on election day there. I mean, the essence of it is that in Australia, you have a professionally run election without the interference of political parties or political activists. That seems to be a day for people to celebrate their civic duty and responsibility to vote and uh, maybe because it's Australia to have a good time doing it too. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, they and part of that is the idea that you it, you are you are required to show up. You're not required to vote. You're certainly not required to vote for one person or another, but you're required to be there and to make your presence known. And so their turnout is in the 90%, which is not even close to what it is in in the United States. No, it's not close, but I I think voting in this country gets a bad rap sometimes because, you know, the voting in the last national election was 66% of eligible voters. True. That's not- Last presidential election, right. Mm -hmm. Yes, but what people sometimes miss about the United States, I think, and, and maybe this is relevant to how we're different from them, is we have too many elections. We have elections all the time. Other countries don't do that. No, that's all true. And EJ and Miles would agree that, you know, that this, you couldn't make a, a primary party-driven election 
compulsory. And, you know, I doubt you could make municipal elections compulsory. But if it's a national election, then, you know, or so let's let's say every, you know, every two years, that general election, I think that's what they would be talking about. I mean, this is where I, I really feel the difference between what they're going to describe and what goes around, what goes on in the United States. I mean, just this week, right, in the United States, the New York Times uh, had a story where they, where they found that 44% of all Republican legislators in swing states, all right, so in the nine states that are critical to the election, have in some way or another tried to overturn the results of that election. We're given the Brown Medal this year to an organization that devotes itself to trying to protect and protect election workers and to make sure that elections are run fairly and in a nonpartisan basis. And this gets, I mentioned this because it really gets at some of the essence of what's different. Here in the United States, elections, the election itself, the administration of the election is a partisan affair. It's not in Australia. It's mm-hmm. a national holiday. Everybody comes together. And there are officials who their job is to fairly and efficiently run those elections. That's their job. Not to represent not as a representative of one party or another, but just as an bureaucrat, really, right? And the most relevant issue there is that you can't expect partisan officials to engage questions about elections without considering the partisan implications, the implications of the of that change for their party. It's yes. just impossible. They, they cannot not do that. Yes, that's, that's true. Yet, we seem to have pulled it off for many, many years. And, and, and it's only recently that it seems to all be coming apart. And, <laughs> and I wonder if that's not because the parties are increasingly polarized, and in part, they're polarized over issues of what democracy means. I looked back on this a little bit, and, and there was an interesting study done from when Australia adopted this, because they actually adopted it in pieces across different states in Australia. And in states, as states passed this compulsory voting or compulsory registration, whatever exactly you want to call it, the vote for the Labor Party increased because the composition of the electorate changes. I mean, and so this is, in my opinion, why elected officials are always going to be so reticent about making any kind of change like this. The only thing I would want to add, or at least, you know, raise, is the fact that the very, you know, the very conditions that you talk about might also present an opportunity here that would not be necessarily so operative in other uh, in other nations you know namely that these are that the states run elections right and so you know the famous phrase from brandeis that states are laboratories of democracy you know creates at least the possibility that this idea of universal voting does not have to you know start at the national level it's not inconceivable for a state or even for that matter a county within a state depending on which state we're talking about to to make that the law for the elections within their state i think we'll uh, we'll hear ej and miles later at varying levels so let's go now to the interview 
EJ and Miles, welcome to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us today. Joy to be with you. Very glad to be here. So EJ, I know that this project of universal voting is something that you were working on when you visited us at Penn State back in 2019. You were maybe just starting the project then. So if you wouldn't mind, I'm just talking a little bit about the origin story of of how you and Miles came to work on this project and maybe of all of the different democracy reform ideas out there, some of which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about. What was it about this one that stood out to you? Uh, you know, my interest in this began because uh, for a variety of reasons, I got very involved with people from Australia, made a lot of visits to Australia, met a lot of people on both sides of politics in Australia, all sides of politics in Australia. And I sort of discovered that they used this system a long time ago and was really impressed all along by how it worked and how well it worked and how it created a sort of a culture of civic engagement that extended all through the society. But also I have watched as we have made progress and then backward movement on voting in the United States. And we'll be talking about this. We should look back on 2020 as an enormous victory for democracy. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Election officials in both parties made it easier for people to vote. And we had extraordinary turnout by, com- by comparative standards because of changes made. And yet the forces of voter suppression continued to work so that in the wake of 2020, as the Brennan Center has shown, we've really become two nations when it comes to democracy. 25 states have built on the voter expansions in 2020, but 19 states are pulling back and enacting various measures to make it harder to vote again. And so this idea struck me as a kind of game-changing idea in that respect. And then the other thing is just looking at the way our system works and some of its core flaws, and we can get into the details of the system, but saying that everyone has a civic duty to vote as well as the right to vote is a way of saying that everybody should be invited into our uh, experiment in self-government. We expect everyone to show up because we want everyone to show up. And that's why I think this system is something that Americans should be ready to adopt. And for a variety of reasons, which we can get into, mm-hmm. we think that you know declaring voting a duty is actually the best way to defend it as a right. Yes, that was a great high-level overview. I think we'll definitely come back and, and dive deeper into to some of those elements. But before we get there, Miles, can you sort of pick up on that and drill down a little bit more into, you know, how you envision civic duty voting working? This really is a game changer, you know, and it's being used in 26 other countries around the world and Australia, you know, for almost 100 years. And my second reaction is, how is it possible that I have been, you know, kind of one of the key people in this democracy movement for this long? And I have never, ever, well, not once been in a conversation about universal voting, even though it results in 90 percent turnouts in, the, in Australia. So I said, all right, this is something I got to dig into. Yeah. And I'm curious to, to talk more about how your experience in previous democracy reform efforts might help move this forward at the end. But before we get too, too far ahead of ourselves here, if, if you wouldn't mind, just, you know, for folks who have not read your book, I I hope that our listeners will, but just, you know, explain 
how you see civic duty voting playing out. As I said uh, earlier, it's a nudge, not a shove. And we think that's important for a variety of reasons. In Australia, and by the way, about two dozen countries use this. The number goes up and down over the years. But this is, it's not unique to Australia, but Australia really does have the proof of concept. Uh, There aren't many ideas we talk about where they've been in operation for a hundred years and have worked. In Australia, the first and, and very important, the government makes it easy to register, makes a lot of efforts to get people registered. You are required to register, but the path is easy. So they register 96% plus of their citizens. And of them, typically 90% turn out to vote. If you don't vote, you get a little notice from the Australian government that asks you why you didn't vote. And if you have any sort of reasonable excuse, they honor the excuse only about uh, 13% end up paying any penalty on this. You know, if I was sick or something, they tend to accept reasonable excuses. And the fine is $20 Australian, which at the moment is about $15 American. And what they do to make voting easier is extraordinary. For example, you can go to any polling place in your state to vote. We just learned recently from a writer for Teen Vogue from Australia that they now uh, have guides where you can get the best food at your polling place. One of the things that we stress in the book is because they create this culture of voting, because they vote on Saturdays, we don't recommend Saturday necessarily, but we recommend Election Day as a holiday. Polling places are the scenes of parties and every civic group and in, you know, in a neighborhood, including school groups, use Election Day as a way to raise money for good local causes. You know, I've always argued that all Americans are divided within ourselves between a strong individualist libertarian commitment and a strong uh, communitarian commitment. And so we take seriously that libertarian commitment. So under our system, you could apply for conscientious objector status out of the box If you really object to participating and some people have that objection for religious reasons or other reasons, we also are very careful about the fine. We would cap it at $20. We would have the same soft touch enforcement as Australia does that people could get out of the fine for any reasonable excuse. We would also try to deal with what has been known as the Ferguson problem which is the piling up of fines and then penalties on low income, especially black Americans, and then the criminalizing of those penalties. So we make very clear, it's not a criminal penalty. It can't be criminalized. No penalties or interest. $20 means $20 and not a penny more. Uh, You could pay the fine through an hour of community service. Uh, The whole point is it's a nudge not a shove or a hammer. So we happen to be recording this on Pennsylvania's primary election day. And so would this this idea of, of universal voting only apply to general election voting or, or how might it influence or, or change the way that parties think about their primaries? In the book, we did talk about whether this should apply to primaries. And in the end, we recommend that it not apply to primaries because they're very complicated. You know, are they governmental affairs? Are they party affairs, et cetera? But I do think that it will change the nature of campaigns generally, certainly in the general elections, but I think that would bleed over into the primaries as well 
because, you know, right now campaigns and you're seeing it in Pennsylvania, you know, on steroids for sure. You know, the, the goal of the campaign is to turn out your own base, sometimes known as enraged to engage, but to turn out your own base. And if you can, in the worst case scenario, depress, prevent people from voting for the other candidate, either by negative campaigning, which you're seeing a lot of now in Pennsylvania, or by straight up voter suppression legislation that just makes it harder for people to vote. On the other hand, if you had universal voting and you knew that every single person was going to vote, or let's call it 90% of the people are going to vote, you really have to be much more careful about your rhetoric. Because right now, all you have to do is get one more vote than than the other uh, warring tribe gets. But on a the, on the universal system, you got to, everybody is listening. Everybody's going to vote. Everybody's listening. And you have to be persuading everybody all the time. And if you go too uh, crazy in the primary, you're going to pay for it in the general. I mean, that's a little bit true today, but under a 90% voting turnout, it would be much more true. So I think it would be very healthy, even though we don't specifically include primaries. And I think it does fight extremism. And that's certainly, as you know from the book, what our Australian interlocutors accept. It doesn't eliminate it. Extremism will always, again, one thing that Miles and I try to emphasize, so I'll do it now. We don't want to be like those 19th century elixir salesmen who tell you, here's our bottle. This will cure all that ails you. We know there are a lot of problems in the in our system that need to be fixed, and we don't pretend this fixes all of them. But we do think it would be a major step in the right direction, and that's why we're making the case for it. So we mentioned before, you know, ranked choice voting. And and I know there's also talk about proportional representation as something else that's sort of big in kind of democracy reform circles right now. You know, you, you do talk in the book about things like automatic voter registration and, you know, some of those things that are, are, are necessary add-ons to make universal voting happen. But I, I wonder if you think that it, it can exist without things like ranked choice voting or proportional representation or other changes to the way that we we cast our votes currently? Well, I I would make two uh, general points. One is that we think there are a whole set of reforms that we generally call gateway reforms in the book that are, you know, we didn't use the word prerequisite, but are certainly elements of making a universal voting system successful. So obviously, if you superimpose a requirement to vote over a system that is resistant to voting or suppressive of voting, that's obviously a major problem. So we strongly support, you know, the suite of reforms, you know, from same day voter registration and early voting and mail-in voting and automatic voter registration, which I know has been, you know, operative in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, along with the restoration of voting rights for people with who have been incarcerated. You know, these are all really, really important reforms because what you want is a system, you know, that encourages people to vote, makes it easy as, as easy as possible for everyone to participate. And then I think a, a, a requirement of, of voting as a civic duty, you know, becomes workable. And the last piece of the kind of gate reforms is competent election administration. I mean, we are really the only country, and I say this as a former partisan election official, but we're the only country that uses partisan election officials to decide on, and also balkanized. You know, we have counties, different counties do things differently, different municipalities do things differently, different states certainly do it differently. You know, one of the things that that the people that we've talked to from Australia have emphasized is that they have a serious, competent, 
properly funded, professionally run national election authority. But the second, I'll just make the second point more quickly. There definitely are, and this goes to EJ's point about you know, not not being this is not a cure all. Mm-hmm. Right. In other words, the Electoral College, if you if you just did universal voting and required everybody to vote and you said, boom, snap our fingers, that's the law of the land now. That wouldn't change the Electoral mm-hmm. College, per se. It wouldn't change the kind of pernicious influence of money in politics. You know, that you you know, that was a major issue for the you know, for the democracy movement. It's still a huge problem. But the Supreme Court has been, you know, horrible on that issue. You know, it wouldn't change the undemocratic nature of the United States Senate itself, you know, where 70% of the people are electing 30% of the senators and vice versa. So we have a huge amount of work to do other than this. But the lane of voting participation is a critically important one. It is the best antidote to all of the other, you know, kind of malformations in our in our system. So we think it's a really, really important form worth really dedicating time and effort into without, you know, making the claim for it that, you know, without those other reforms, it's no good. Yeah. Do you see this as a, a potential sort of bottom up instigator for change? If there is more, you know, if everyone or most people are voting, then it might help to at least increase the the discussion or the you know pressure to change some of those more undemocratic elements of of our political systems well we hope so i mean again i, I we're, we try to be careful here in making our case because on the one hand we really do think this would be a big and positive change and again to go to australia it's a cultural change about democracy and politics that is deeply important and we think you know ends up permeating the the society and as that you know turnout even when it's not required in Australia shows and you know you can imagine that if everyone has to vote people in states where there is never any contest would say you know what does our vote mean in an electoral college where we always know our state is going to go for republicans or always going to go for democrats and we think it it's uh, the other reason i like this idea is it really forces us to ask, what do we mean by democracy? When we fight over these individual reforms, and it's very important to fight for them, you can get bogged down in whether is it 10 days of early voting or 20 days, what do you do on Sundays, how many Sundays do you have, and all kinds of very specific things. And we really want to draw a line in the sand and ask the country to decide, do you really want a fully inclusive electoral system where everybody votes and where you invite everybody in? Or are you really trying to restrict the system to keep some people out? And we think having the argument at the higher level is a good way to force the issue and have us confront as a country, how committed are we really to the small d democratic idea? Right. Yeah. And, you know, you also cite in the book some public opinion research that shows that, you know, as you said before, Americans are very libertarian in some ways. We don't like other people telling us what to do, let alone the government telling us what to do. So it's, it's an uphill battle there for sure. But well, bless you for being more polite than I sometimes am about the challenge that poses to our idea, which is 
if Americans won't agree to vaccinations that might save their lives, how in the world can we expect people uh, to agree with this? And you raise the polling. And uh, the other thing I've often said as Miles and I talked about the book is that we are either two of the most honest book writers in the world or two of the dumbest, because we report polling we did that shows that as of right now, as of February of 2020, only 26% of Americans support our idea. Now, when I saw those numbers, I was actually heartened because this is an idea that's never been advanced in a systematic way at all. And I thought that was pretty good for starters. And what we also found is about half of us, 48%, were really strongly opposed, which to me means that half of the Americans are already at least open to persuasion on this idea. And we used the polling to try to figure out what objections people had so that we could answer them in the book. And that's what we try to do. But the other side of our polling that was heartening to us is we asked the question, do you see voting as a right and a duty, a right but not a duty, or neither a right nor a duty? 61% of Americans agree that voting is both a right and a duty. And the numbers were equal among Republicans and Democrats, 69%. It's interesting that nonpartisan people were a little less likely to say it's both right and a duty. And granted, this polling was done before Donald Trump started the big lie about 2020. But what we found that was also heartening is that Republicans and Democrats were not that far apart in their views on adopting this system. And so we think we uh, we definitely think the idea has a fighting chance. And as I said at the out, we try as much as we can to answer legitimate libertarian arguments, knowing that there are some libertarians and they've written columns against the idea already, which we actually welcome. We want a debate on this. So when people are against it, we want them out there because we want to foster debate about it. We are really, you know, to say it in the kind of, you know, darkest terms, we're in a, a really vicious cycle where people are disconnected from the government. They don't vote. They don't participate. Government, as a, as a result, is responsive to the people who do participate. So it's it's both the A-list voters that EJ talked about earlier, and obviously it's also to the, you know, the big donors in the system. Those are the people who count. And, you know, consistently political, you know, governmental policy outcomes tilt towards the, you know, towards the rich. And so then people more disengage more because then they don't trust the government. And so they vote less. And so the whole thing is sort of, you know, drooping down. What we're hoping is to sort of break that and kind of interject and start what we would hope would be a virtuous cycle. Whereas if you actually have everyone participating, then you probably will get, there is indications that in other countries where this happens, a more responsive government. You, as uh, as EJ and I both said earlier, you invite people into the process so they become listeners and participants as opposed to, you know, you know, sideliners. And hopefully, you know, that, that all starts to, 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 you know, build on itself. Right. So where does this start? You know, would this be something that, that a state would take up, say, maybe one of the states that has shown itself to be more open to these these types of, of electoral reforms, like Maine, Colorado, Oregon, Washington are a few that, that come to mind? And if so, is this a, a, a citizen-led ballot initiative? So you kind of marshal that that public support. It really is coming from the bottom up. Is it coming from the, the state legislature? Uh, what do you think is is the most 
likely path to actually implementing civic duty voting somewhere in in the country? We talk about doing this at all levels. And actually, the book produced a bill in Congress that Miles can talk about. I have a particular dream on this, which is I would like to see a Republican state and a Democratic state adopted at the same time. The two I have in mind are Vermont and Utah. Vermont and Utah are both, are their smaller states. They both have a history of supporting political reform. Neither party has a lot to worry about in either state. You know, Vermont is pretty reliably Democratic unless the Republicans nominate a rather moderate or liberal Republican. And, you know, Utah is pretty safely Democratic with a couple, a Republican rather, with a couple of exceptions. And so we would mo- some models out there of how this can work. And Miles can go on about the other sort of ways in which we see this operating. Miles, go ahead. Sure. No, I'm I'm I, I'm I'm motivated on the Utah-Vermont axis here. This is a, this will be an important thing. But yes, I mean, you know, having the book out there is a really important first step because I think you know it's doing a lot to legitimate the idea. And thank you for helping do us do that by having us on the podcast today. But what's what I think is important is that it needs to be in there needs to be an organized citizen effort to make this happen. Uh, and it can happen at any one of three levels, right? As uh, EJ mentioned, Congressman John Larson, who's my own congressman in Connecticut, by the way, you know, saw us on Morning Joe, read, the, got a copy of the book, read the book, and uh, decided that he was going to submit a bill. So there now is a bill in Congress, the Civic Duty to Vote Act. It's HR seven five three six, and that's great, wonderful, and a really, really good start. In the pro-democracy movement, there's a, a lot of robust organizations that are doing really, really good work, have grassroots support, and we'd like to see uh, universal voting one of the agenda items within that democracy movement. Not to supplant other efforts by any means, but to be added to it as a kind of a north star. What is it that we really want? And so, in service of that. We're actually working to create the 100% Democracy Initiative as sort of a center and a focal point of of energy to move this forward and looking for opportunities at where it might go. You know, we recently talked on this show with our colleague at Penn State, Kevin Munger, who has a new book out about generational conflicts in politics and what he describes as the boomer ballast of, you know, boomers continued uh, dominance of politics and, and culture and some of these things we've been talking about. You know, with that in mind, I, I wonder how you might frame uh, this idea of, of civic duty voting as through that that generational lens. How is the argument different maybe for young people who we know historically have not voted as much as you know baby boomers and older generations? Well, I love that question, partly because I always tell our three kids that I'm not worried about the future of democracy over the long haul, as long as we can survive the next 10 or 15 years, because when my generation is gone and theirs takes over, we'll be in pretty good shape. They're more open. They care about the climate. They, they're, and the only problem with that argument is I want to be around to see it. So there may be a contradiction in my own uh, argument. But you're absolutely right. And it's very important to realize the ways in which our political system shuts young people out. In particular, our voter registration systems are horrible for young people unless you have 
election registration because older people tend to be more settled. They stay at the same address. Our voting system makes it very easy for our old people to stay on the rolls. Young people in the nature of their lives move around a lot more. And it often happens that they want to be engaged in the election, but a state has, for example, a really early deadline for registering to vote in the election. So they focus, like a lot of other people on the election, three or four weeks before, maybe two weeks before, and they discover they're shut out. They can't vote. Under this system, the authorities would have to make it easier for them to vote. We think election day registration is a good way to do that. And so their power would increase. Just to underscore your point, as you know, in our book, we have uh, numbers on uh, turnout from the census. And 2020 was a great year for youth voting. And 54.1% of 18 to 29s voted compared to 74.5%, a 20-point gap among voters over um, 65 The last point there is our own polling showed something very interesting, which is that young people were less likely to say that uh, voting was a civic duty, but more likely to be open to our reform, because I think young people are prepared for greater levels of change uh, than older people are, which kind of underscores your point. And I think their answer to the first question is, They don't like uh, baby boomers to tell them what to do, and they may have some worries about this idea being reflective of that. But if, as you suggest, this is seen instead as really filling one of the big holes in our participation, which is the underrepresentation of the young, this empowers young Americans in a substantial way, and we hope we can make that case. You know, there's an interesting historical analogy, not on young people, but one of the great victories of the civil rights movement of the 1960s was to win the right for black people to serve on juries from which they had been excluded. But if you think about it, what they really were fighting for was the right to be compelled to serve on juries. And the logic was that the uh, inconvenience of having to go serve on a jury was way outweighed by the power that being on a jury conveyed in terms of the outcomes of of trials, et cetera. And I think the same thing for young people today, which is this would be an incredible way for the power of young people to, you know, felt and exercised in the political system. As you know, from reading the book, we quote the great civil rights lawyer and uh, law professor, Charles Ogletree, who said that a jury gives ordinary people extraordinary power And so does the vote. And that is what we are arguing here. And I, again, I think that's something that would appeal to young people who want more influence on this system. Right. Well, that is, I think, a good note to end things on. Hopefully the two of you will get to get back out on the road to campuses this fall and and make that case to young people. And Thank you for this book and for joining us today to talk about it. Great pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thanks a lot. Glad to be here. Great interview. They're, they're both absolutely smart, decent patriots who want to, want to change things for the better and it's worth listening to them. Mike, I just want to make one 
point about the possibility argument before we get to the is this a good idea and and will it do what they what they hope it will do and that is this you know I completely agree, and I think they would agree, that in a world, in a society where you can't get people to wear masks, the idea that you can say, you, it's, it's your civic duty to vote, you have to vote, is just not going to go anywhere. Not to mention the fact that the idea of getting past this partisanization of American life is, is just makes any change like this so threatening it's just unlikely to happen but there is one self-interested argument that they mention at the end that i think is really interesting and it gets back to the the point or the the the, the podcast we just had with kevin munger about um the generational divide young people do not vote at rates similar to older folks they move around a lot they're not they're not they don't know what to do in terms of registration and so they just don't right if young people were to embrace this issue and were to uh, make it a reality in some municipality like say Madison Wisconsin it could actually change the dynamic not with regards to partisanship, but with regards to this generation gap between younger and older Americans. And it may be worth pitching that to younger people who are interested in changing the politics, interested in having their issues heard more, more receptive to their issues in politics. Anyway, but that's just one issue. And everybody acknowledges that it's a, it's a heavy lift. But, but there's also the question of just is this a good idea generally? They, they lay out a lot of reasons why they think this would help. And I just want to hear from you, Michael, you know, what do you think about those claims? Do you think there's, there's anything to them? Do you think it could really improve our politics? Yeah, well, I certainly think that institutional changes and changes in rules can, can change behavior. And voting is habit forming. So, I mean, the best predictor of whether or not you're going to vote in an election is whether you voted in the election before. And so getting people to vote early in their lives, getting them out and developing a habit of voting has got to be a positive thing in terms of increasing the amount of political participation in the country. And I suppose, as you're saying, in kind of uh, bringing the uh, bringing the vote, bringing who votes closer to what the population looks like. But I also I wouldn't move quite so quickly past the freedom arguments that you brought up at the very beginning. Because I think that it's not just that the American fixation on freedom would make this very difficult to do. I also think it would turn it, could potentially turn it into just another issue on which we're all, which we're all fighting about. No, I think that's right. I mean, you are, you already see some some states trying to make voting easier and some states that are trying to make voting harder. Now, to me, it's somewhat hypocritical because I don't really hear people that are really fixated on freedom saying that nobody should have to serve on a jury. But actually, everybody's required to serve on a jury. It's just very easy to get out of it. And, and so the, the, the counter argument is that this is just another thing that you do as a part of citizenship. Mm -hmm. It's not looked at, I think, as something you do on the part of citizenship. It's looked at as totally a partisan kind of behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I just don't know how we get around that. And in fact, it could just make things worse 
because it gives another thing to have this kind of fight about. Having said that, Chris, can I just say, I like the idea. <laughs> I think that a lot of good would come out of requiring, I mean, I like the whole menu that they lay out because I, I think it's important that in Australia, as well as in the kind of proposals that Miles and EJ are talking about, they're not just saying compulsory voting and then that's it, right? It goes along with making election day a holiday, right? And it goes right. along with what were they talking about? Like, hey, let's vote in bars, they were saying. And I'm thinking you're not even allowed in some states to bring a glass of water to somebody on Yeah, line. right. And so the idea that here we're just going to turn it into a big party a civic party, I mean, I get all that. It's a beautiful thought. It just feels so counter to American culture right now. I completely agree with you. And and it really is their biggest argument that um, they say democracy cannot be strong if citizenship is weak. And right now, citizenship in America is radically unbalanced, strong on rights, but weak on responsibilities. Exactly. And, and I just want to say I'm amen. I think that's exactly that. right. Yeah. And and if and universal voting is is one means by which we can rebalance this imbalanced relationship between rights and responsibilities. You know, we did recent polling and we've been doing this pretty consistently at the Institute where we've been asking people what they value about democracy and young people are the most likely to say nothing. So what do you value about democracy? Nothing. So we consider people like this to be somewhat disaffected. <laughs> I think that's a reasonable right? assumption. So what happens when you pull them into the electorate? Now, one argument that may well be, you know, and I think EJ would say this, is you're going you're gonna to deal with that disaffection. They're going to vote. They're going to be part of something. It's going to become a habit and they will be maybe they won't be disaffected. Maybe they'll just be the moderate voters that EJ is hoping for them to be. But it could also be that demagogues will figure out the way to speak to these disaffected people in a really negative kind of way for our politics. I mean, it is the, you know, Miles Rappaport, EJ Dion are not naive. <laughs> they've they've been around the block. They they have the scars to prove it. So they know that this is a heavy lift, but they also feel like this is a debate that we need to have. I think, you know, clearly a provocative and interesting topic and and one that people who are concerned about the condition of our democracy ought to take seriously. So Thanks to Jenna for the interview. Uh, thanks to Miles and EJ for putting this in, uh, issue on the table. Uh, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. Thanks for listening. Democracy Works is a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Our editors are Mickey Klein, Chris Kugler, and Mark Stitzer. Editorial review by Emily Reddy. And additional production support from Andy Grant and Chris Allen. If you enjoyed what you heard today, leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. It will help new people find the show. Find more great podcasts about democracy and civic engagement in the Democracy Group Podcast Network at democracygroup.org. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. 
If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.